0: Hey, folks. Thanks for joining us again. This is Elliot with Poor Pearl's Almanac here with Andy.
1: How you doing?
0: You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs for hosting the podcast. Shout out to our recent Patreon subscribers, JerBear205, MJ Wallace, and Sam Gates. Y'all are amazing. And we can express our gratitude for your contributions. We don't explicitly offer benefits to our Patreon subscribers in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. And uh, if we get more money than we need, we will be donating it to a good cause and keep you all in the loop about that. However, we did recently post the one-time episode on prepping for the election, which didn't really belong with any of the series-focused things and isn't something we plan to commonly do. But if you're interested and you're willing to donate, it is on our Patreon right now. Needless to say, while we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you're using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly helpful, and we appreciate seeing your time and effort uh, giving us in giving us feedback and help us stand out in a vast sea of podcasts. We'd like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. And um, we don't just post updates about the show, we, but we do incorporate leftists and in ecological history as well as some uh, information about foraging, hunting, and botanical guidelines that we find interesting. And, of course, memes.
1: Lots of memes.
0: And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to um, our previous episodes and even our first episode and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content. And from there, um, we will go into this episode.
1: So this is the second episode of our mini-series we've called the Reimagining Series and an opportunity for us to not focus on skills or knowledge or anything like that, but use history as a tool to learn from our past mistakes and successes. Since the concept of this podcast is that the current state structure is dissolved, we are not held to the various hierarchies and debts that exist today, and we have the opportunity to reimagine how we use the world as it is today for the world we want an authentic democratic society in which folks are not limited by capital or resource allocation. In this episode, we're talking about self-determination and self-defense through the liberatory framework of community armed self-defense by looking at the collection of essays and interviews strung together by Scott Crow in his book Setting Sites, Histories, and Reflections on Community Armed Self-Defense. A major piece of the framework of this book stems around the argument of liberation through self-determination, a foundational piece of anarchist theory. While this podcast focuses on reimagining the future and how we prep through a general leftist lens, the idea for us was to use that context to frame up building relationships and community development, not necessarily or explicitly in an anarchist, communist, Marxist, or whateverist specific way. However, considering the ramifications of collapse, it's easy to assume new systems of organization will have to be fundamentally decentralized because of the conditions surrounding us, which leads us to focusing more from an anarchist or anarcho-communist perspective. With that out of the way, Scott Crow highlights the conditions that have led to our current state, and I think stands as a guiding light in the dialogue on community self-defense during the various stages of collapse. In the forward, Scott states that, and I quote, liberals have been paying lip service to the concept of community building for the past half century, all the while purporting to seek its realization through electoral politics and passage of legislation of underwriting assorted federal programs, thus nullifying the prospect of community control. In contrast, Anarchists have from time to time actualized something akin to genuine community self-sufficiency in various places, although such efforts have been both situational and transient. On the whole, the Black Panther Party, in its prime, provided a model that was effective, replicable, and potentially sustainable, while the party itself floundered, largely as a result of official repression, but also due to a complex range of factors, The crux of what differentiated the Black Panther's approach was its appreciation of the link between community self-sufficiency and the capacity to reject the impositions of external forces, such as the police, thereby achieving community control of key institutions, creating what Noam Chomsky described as the threat of a good example.
0: Right. So what we're doing here in this episode, um, just to bring things home a little bit before we dive deep into scott crowe's book setting Sights. we are doing this reimagining series and sort of looking at the current world today through a lens of if this is the end of say we'll say a um a regression of capitalism or maybe i don't want to say the end i'm not really sure i do well (laughs) let's capitalism is going to need to change if we're going to move forward with it as a system um that will remain the status quo.
1: Yeah, I think the the dominant space of capitalism as an economic model is collapsing. And I think the fact that Andrew Yang, who we're going to talk about a bit in the next episode of this miniseries, the fact that he was able to become an actual player in the Democratic Party speaks to the fact that capitalism is in desperate need of saving um, if you want it to be saved.
0: Right. With that being said, we're using this reimagining series to sort of take these theories that we are reading about and sort of try to apply them to our current situation now to give us a little bit of perspective on how we can go about moving forward with our current state.
1: Sure. I want to get into what he defines as community armed self defense, since the idea of this episode is in this theoretical situation. If there were to be collapse and you were able to organize with folks, Uh, you know, last episode, we talked about reimagining how we can develop our cities into spaces that are functional and accessible uh, in a decentralized way. This episode is about how to defend that space, uh, especially if there's no formal government in place. And whether or not you think there should be one, we're going to assume there isn't. And we're going to look towards a lot of anarchist theory to figure out what is our best solution. In Scott's book, he talks about this idea of community-armed self-defense as a liberatory opportunity, and that it puts everyone on equal footing. Cops no longer have the ability to brutalize people in the community without retaliation. A gun is an equalizer for oppressed women at the hands of men. Scott Crooke defines the term liberatory community-armed self-defense to mean the collective group practice of temporarily taking up arms for defensive purposes as part of larger engagements of self-determination in keeping with a liberatory ethics. He points to the Black Panther Party, which was, in quote, engaged in community defense, not only through armed patrols, but also through their survival programs, which opened health clinics and free schools in poor black neighborhoods otherwise lacking in these services, end quote. For the anarchists listening that have some theory behind them, this concept is nothing new. For you guys that don't have a big background in theory, I highly recommend checking out Slava Zizek's analysis of violence. There's a bunch of stuff up on YouTube where he talks about different ideas of unrecognized types of violence, things like structural violence and economic violence, which can and should be responded with organized self-defense, whatever that might mean for your conditions.
0: And anybody who's not going to read up on anarchist theory about violence or anything like that, I'll give you the short, the short view of this story Is he frames community self-defense as defending people's lives against external forces who are either going to do harm or potentially fatally wound people who are in your community. And I think one of the main distinctions he makes in the book is talking about he will never pick up a gun or even think about using a gun in the act of protecting private property. And I think that's one of the main distinctions that he makes in the book between, you know, being a macho gun owner and, and somebody who carries a gun every day. He specifically owns his uh, semi-automatic rifle because of his views. And there are people in the world who would like to do him harm. And he's been doxed by New York Times before. And his address was put out on, in the newspaper. And he's gotten death threats and, and things like that. So that's a very real threat for, you know, somebody in his position and somebody who, you know, might not even be in the spotlight like that, might have a dangerous job, career, or live in a dangerous neighborhood or anything like that. And I think the main point he makes is everybody is entitled to defending themselves. It doesn't matter where you're from. Uh, that That's just a human right that everybody has. Yeah.
1: And it's interesting that we're recording this now and just the way the news has evolved in the past couple weeks. If we look at what's been going on in Portland, for example, the the word anarchist is being thrown around as a synonymous term with chaos, which it, it isn't. You know that because you're listening to this. But the reality is that as an anarchist, if you identify or are sympathetic with anarchists, you have to acknowledge the fact that Both candidates right now running for election have talked about locking up anarchists for their political views, not for anything they've done, but simply for what they believe in. Correct. So that idea of self-defense is very important for us even today, never mind in this scenario.
0: And that's not a marginalized group that people talk about or anything like that uh, because it is political views. I don't yeah, No
1: one's going to be sympathetic for you because you're an anarchist, right. which comes with its own challenges. But also it comes with a great community of people that understand. So to get back to this text a little bit, Crow explains that liberatory community armed self-defense is different from other forms of armed action because while temporary, it is organized. And second, it is based in power sharing and egalitarian principles. Which are incorporated into group ethics and culture long before conflict is ever engaged the liberatory framework is built on anarchist principles of mutual aid direct action meaning taking action without waiting on the approval of authorities solidarity and community self-determination the use of arms is only effective for long-term struggle if it is part of a dual power framework meaning resisting exploitation and oppression while also developing other initiatives towards autonomy and liberation as part of other efforts in self-sufficiency and self-determination.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of big words in there. Um, I think one of the main ones and the scariest one for us to look at in this hypothetical situation is self-determination. I think that's something that a lot of people typically have to be pushed into a corner before they're willing to risk their lives and potentially take lives in order to defend it.
1: Let's talk a little bit about what this means and kind of uh, bring it back into um, his ideas and his examples that he gives us in terms of the various essays that he includes in this book. When we talk about things like self-determination, um, it, it, it sounds impending in the sense that there's no sense of authority which can be frightening if you've always kind of had a framework around you set up. And his argument is that having your ability to defend yourself and your community, to develop it in the way that you see fit, allows folks to have authority in what their life can look like and what their communities can look like. That, that comes along with ideas like mutual aid, gift economies, direct action, like I said, or like we had said shortly before the idea of you don't have to answer to somebody in order to do something and by creating this flat network things are able to be done more efficiently autonomously and there's no challenge to authority because there is no authority there's no being able to hold power over another person this concept within the context of arms resistance can be seen in a, multiple, in a bunch of different ways. That doesn't mean that there isn't, for example, if you look at Rojava, which is one of the examples he talks about, when you look at their, uh, the YPJ or any of those other organizations that uh, are part of their self-defense and uh, resistance army, they do have leadership, but it's elected leadership with direct accountability, and the United States relied on them to beat back ISIS. So this idea of self-determination through armed resistance has a significant track record of actually being able to succeed.
0: Yeah, so chapter on Rojava was interesting. Um, I had heard about it, but I never um, researched it in full length. And they went over the Damascus Spring leading into the Arab Spring back in uh, the 2010s and late 2000s. They were an unrecognized state. Basically, uh, ethnic oppression against those people at one point i what what was the fuse that lit the powder keg for the kurds
1: the history of rojava and the the kurds uh, is super complicated because of these groups like the pkk
0: right there's a lot of moving parts in it but basically what happened was there's two countries and there's an ethnic group of people that were basically they had nowhere to go and no homeland and they're being persecuted on both sides and they found a way to defend themselves in their community and unify in solidarity In the fact that they were being persecuted in their ethnicity and they um, solidified their defenses and held off three um, key cities in the region that turned out to be their autonomous zone. It's not a recognized country or anything like that, but they're an anarchist state. They don't have a, a recognized or organized government, but there are people living there, and and like Andy said, they're thriving.
1: Yeah, and uh, it's interesting because if you look at their history, uh, when Trump pulled the U.S. military out of that region as uh, backup for Rojava, it was expected that the the region would collapse because of without U.S. support. Despite this, they've actually still stayed fairly successful and have been able to organize and keep themselves independent from everyone around them that's trying to bring bring the region down. Uh, if you are interested in Rojava, I'm hoping in probably three or four episodes, we're going to do...
0: We're, we're going to do an in-depth dive, I'm pretty sure, yeah, to take a look at it.
1: There's a text called uh, Make Rojava Green Again. I'm hoping to incorporate that into this mini miniseries, uh, which I think how right now how we have it framed up is we're going to have this conversation on... Kropotkin's The Conquest of Bread and What is Work. Uh, We're going to dive into Murray Bookchin uh, Post-Scarcity Anarchism because of the fact that The Conquest of Bread is about being able to provide the basics for people and that we have the resources to do it. And Murray Bookchin's Post-Scarcity Anarchism is about the fact that we have the technology that scarcity is no longer an issue and he focuses on ecological anarchism. The, The Rojava Revolution was based on a the PKK leader named uh, Abdullah Ajalan, who um, was inspired by Murray Bookchin's Mm -hmm. work and has been the guiding voice in a lot of what's going on in Rojava. So it all does kind of come full circle. And I think we can look at the historical context of anarchist theory, as well as how we can reimagine our world and tie all of these things together in some cohesive fashion. This episode is about that community self-defense so we do have to touch on Rojava. I would like to bring it back to some American examples, starting with the history of Hurricane Katrina. So for those of you guys that are old enough to remember, was something to experience. It also stands as one of the most misunderstood periods in recent American history. Absolutely. In Jay Clark's essay Three Way Fight Revolutionary Anti Fascism and Armed Self Defense, Clark dives into the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, to discuss the role of armed self defense within the context of complete collapse and the lessons we can learn. When chaos ensues, white militias took to the streets to protect private property and to secure end quote, law and order, end quote, locally in absence of the state. Unsurprisingly, their actions followed suit of the police and quickly fell into a rabbit hole of intimidation and harassment of minorities, including multiple instances of murdering unarmed people of color in the streets. Tensions escalated, and a former Black Panther in the area who had been getting increasing threats reached out to anarchists in Texas for help. Scott Crowe was one of those folks, so it's really interesting. Um, we get multiple perspectives on this, this couple-day siege that essentially takes place in New Orleans.
0: There's, there's nothing, uh, what I wanted to say was there's nothing like a disaster to show you the vulnerabilities of your current situation. And when Katrina happened, George W. Bush was President, and he said he was going to send aid and It was about a week before any meaningful aid actually got down to Louisiana and actually helped people and In that week um, was when these vigilante militias were formed, and they started to, in the name of law and order, police their streets and brutalize marginalized groups in New Orleans in the Algiers and Algiers Point in New Orleans. So the hurricane came through, flooded out the town, and there was no electricity or running water, and people were taking supplies. The media did cover some of the aftermath, and there was a lot of the use of the word looters and things like that. And they were saying there were mobs and things like that, uh, storming stores. And so some of the locals took took up arms and said they were going to restore order until help could arrive. And that turned into, they, they I think the body count was at least 19. African-American men, usually pretty young, were gunned down in the streets and left to bloat and bake in the New Orleans sun after the flood happened. Yeah, so Scott Crow got a call from Malik Rahim to go down to New Orleans. He needed support, and what he meant by that was the militia had formed and they were driving by his house and making threats to him and people in in the community just for, for being black and for living where they were in a poor neighborhood.
1: Scott Crow and some other folks were able to sneak into the city despite the fact there was martial law. They were able to get to Malik's house, and they worked with residents in the area to put together a system of self-defense for the community. An armed standoff ended up taking place with the white militia, and upon seeing the armed organized group, they eventually left. Clark argues that, in quote, Without the presence of an organized armed opposition to the Algiers Point Militia, violence against poor people of color in Algiers would likely have been worse than it was. The presence of whites and blacks working together to defend a community against the racist militias was often cited by local residents as having eased tension in a racially and economically divided area that was devastated in many ways before Katrina ever came ashore
0: seeing white men and black men stand together armed in defense of their community. It quite literally had the community itself and these vigilante militias shook, which I think is the whole point of community armed self defense. It's to make the point that you can push us, but you can only push us so far. Yeah.
1: One of the other key points of this is uh Scott had talked to, or Scott Crow had talked about the idea of building dual power structures by having this uh organized system of self defense they were able to build food distribution sites, medical clinics, and independent media centers while the struggle was going on. And this idea of being able to create a complex system where you're able to provide your own narrative through media outlets of what's going on, you're able to challenge a lot of those stereotypes. So I remember how old were we when that happened? We were 17, 18, something like that. And yeah, you didn't hear, all you heard about was gangs looting and it was never portrayed as white gangs looting black neighborhoods and right. things they like that right they never talked
0: about the violence it was all about private property so they were reporting on you know people stealing diapers and baby food to feed their children and in, in the aftermath that. Yeah, I and remember all, all the had, they had zoomed in on a couple of people who were stealing TVs and yeah. stuff, but there was no electricity. That was just people <laughs> wilding out. Like there were people who were quite literally trying to survive who got labeled criminals when they were just trying to do what they needed to do to feed themselves and stay alive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I have like one image like drilled into my head from high school and watching the footage is like like a young black man like walking out of a place in a flood with a tv over his head
0: right and and, like, and some nikes or something like that and that that picture circulated on the internet yeah with, i remember red circles around the products that was was being taken and that was you know one individual out of a city that was decimated yeah um, and
1: honestly like who fucking cares they have insurance and like also the companies that he's stealing from Over the course of the time that those companies have been in those communities have stolen more than that guy or that community could ever steal out of that one store. If you think about the businesses that major corporations have put out, the fact that they pay starvation wages, all these different things. I
0: I couldn't care less if anybody got away with a free TV in the aftermath of uh, a a hurricane that quite literally leveled uh, one of the best historical cities that our nation has to offer.
1: Yeah, especially considering, you know, we could have done something about it and they fucking didn't. They they knew that wall wasn't safe.
0: George W. Bush was ready to call troops home from Iraq to send them to New Orleans in order to restore law and order. Um, he did have a quote uh, in the news saying that he was on TV saying that. And that alone, uh l- looking back on it, when I read that in setting sites, I didn't remember it at the time when it happened. But looking back on it um in setting sites, when Scott Crowe brings it back up, it kind of sent a shiver down my spine because I could see in an event like that happening now, our current president saying something like that. So I'm trying to reimagine a situation where. Our current government falls short yet again to provide support and help to the citizens of the nation and in the event of catastrophe like that. Yeah. And and not having to rely on them so that we don't have to, to worry about it in a situation like that.
1: A little sidebar here like, fuck George Bush because he killed a bunch of people in New Orleans. He's responsible for a bunch of deaths in Iraq. I think he probably has at least a million deaths to his name at this point. And right now the media is doing a really impressive job trying to salvage his image and trying to give it this, George cared about us. He wasn't the best, but he did his best and he really cared about America. And fuck that because they're going to do that to Trump if he, if somehow we make it out of this and things are normal again. You, you wait 10 years. That's what they'll be doing to Trump. So fuck that. Um, but yeah. Anyways, a little side tangent. So that that was a little bit about that. At least that's a historical context of uh, Malik's story. Uh, What was really interesting is that when we... The text actually has multiple perspectives on what happens with Malik's history uh, during this time. So we have another person that wrote an essay called On Violence. In the essay, we're able to experience the struggle for self-determination in the aftermath of collapse through the perspective of one of the anarchists who came to the aid of Malik. And I quote, Malik had reported that in the time since our first arrival, two white militias had formed. These vigilantes were barely more than organized lynch mobs made up of drunken fools and racists from Algiers Point, a small, very wealthy, white enclave surrounded by a scattering of poor whites on the edges. The abandoned Algiers Point houses were decorated with hateful and fearful signs. The thin veneer of civil society that kept them from acting out of their most racist tendencies had broken enough for all their hatred to emerge. The line between authorities and thugs blurred, leaving everyone else nowhere to turn. This was unlike anything I knew. I was taking a conceptual framework of armed self-defense into reality with many unknowns and far more danger. Self-defense of our communities, by any means, is our right whether the Constitution says so or not people will fight for liberation when the boot is on their neck, not when governments give permission.
0: In a situation like this where your human rights are being violated, how far are you willing to let an oppressor go or or an an antagonizer go before you're willing to say enough, I'm, I'm drawing the line here and you can't go any further?
1: Yeah, and I think also this highlights a couple things that we really haven't talked about so much in this show the dynamics of what happens in collapse in terms of tribalism you know we we like to think in america or not even in america we like to think right now with what's going on with trump oh it's just poor racist white guys out in appalachia or whatever and what we're actually seeing when we look at the demographic data is that middle-class white america supports them just as much if not more than those poor white appalachia folk that have no education Generally, when folks talk about liberals, are the ones that will let us slide into fascism because of their fear of challenging their middle class disposition. Uh, this is what we're what generally we're talking about. When um, Malcolm X talked about how he learned after time and time again failures of the white moderate. Um, this mm-hmm. is he was talking about liberals that you know would give lip service and um, drain down the energy of organized movements uh with the idea of we're gonna do everything but actually make change um you know non-violence, nonviolent violence protests don't work and even martin luther king acknowledged that there were limitations to it but there was a very strong very radical left wing of left wing of his civil rights movement that was able to push the narrative forward mm-hmm. and it's easy to forget that after martin luther king died Pretty much every major city in the United States was up in flames before anything changed, and that's right. when things changed.
0: Right. So push came to shove. People had to draw a line. Basically, that's that's where these situations come into play. And in setting sights, uh, I think Scott Crow. This is his story, um, by the way, that we're going over now. He goes down to New Orleans with his anarchist theory behind him. He's used. He he's a pacifist. He doesn't use violence. Um, There was one instance earlier in his life where he used violence, where he had to defend his mother from his father who had been beating her. That was the only time he had ever been ready to do violence, and it kind of had him shook. So this story, moving on later in his life, he went through trials and tribulations that made him realize being armed might be the best course of action for him to protect himself. And in this situation, he was right. So he goes down to New Orleans to help. Uh, Malik Rahim, uh, when he got a phone call in the middle of the night after he had been there earlier the week, he um, had gone to New Orleans to go search for a friend who had been missing for three days and he had no luck and he returned home to Austin, Texas. And he gets a call when he's home from Malik Rahim to come down and help him. He needs support uh, because there's vigilantes roaming around, uh, gunning down black people in the streets in broad daylight and especially at night.
1: One of he gives us, I think, three perspectives on the same incident in uh, New Orleans, and one of them, t- um, one of the uh, the writers, his parents were Black Panthers, so he was very familiar uh, and intimate with the workings of how the Black Panthers organized. Part of their development of those dual power structures was based on Black Panther practices uh, with setting up those food clinics and things like that. So he. He was able to s- develop those systems and they were extremely successful proving that the models were able to work independent of the historical conditions that the black panthers had worked within suggesting that those autonomous uh, zones of creating food and health care and all of these different things that people need can work anywhere and this brings us back to that idea of how we want to re-envision community self-defense because we have these time-tested examples Uh, that have been able to work in various situations. I think that especially this Hurricane Katrina example is particularly useful for us to think about because of the fact that when we talk about a collapse, if it's the Trump election or if it's climate change or the United States just starts to falter from a myriad of other things, it's not going to be a simple civil war in the sense of what happened in the 1850s. We're looking at urban versus rural divisions within cities, what will probably happen will be far closer to what we saw in Ireland in the sense that there'll be targeted attacks and things like that. And eventually, government will lose its control over certain areas.
0: Right. And so basically what will happen is the state will not recognize any sort of dissent or insurgency as having any legitimacy. And so it turns any sort of response into uh, a criminal act basically it's assuming that when the state wins they're going to put you in in jail for it or to death for it for your insurrection
1: yeah so how do we how do we organize in order to self-defend in these types of scenarios Um, and it comes down to this concept that individuals have the right to arm themselves they have to understand how to arm themselves uh, and what that means, and we have to respect the autonomy and authority of every individual within that uh, organization or that group of people that have chosen to be a part of this group, whatever you want to call it, commune name you name it so in a lot of groups and in one of the essays uh, trial by fire that 's in this collection, we see that they talk heavily about the necessity of folks to not just get trained in firearms use but additionally nonviolent conflict resolution and feminist theories before they're allowed to touch a gun. The idea being that the gun should be your last resort, and we are not cops. We are not going to shoot you for no reason. It's not about authority or power. It's about community self-defense.
0: So Trial by Fire goes over um, the concept of having about six months of training. Basically, it's six months of police training before you can even touch or uh, train to use a firearm. And basically, uh, essentially, what it's doing is turning everybody into a police officer so that we don't need the police. Everybody has the same training and is on the same page. And has and the same rights. And has the same rights and the same authority to use their firearms. So that means when push comes to shove, um, if you're justified, which... You know, in the the community sense, you would be understanding that a firearm is the last line of defense or last resort to solving a situ a uh, problem or a, in a situation. You're eliminating the need for a third party to show up and take care of the situation.
1: And it further eliminates challenges of bias. American policing is unique in the sense that it's uniquely fucked. We have police officers that are not residents of communities that don't reflect the needs of the communities, that don't reflect the diversity of communities, that don't have any accountability. Um, And obviously, chances are, you know this. Uh, I'm not really saying anything new. But it's important to really articulate why community self-defense operates in a different manner than an armed force that's put in place to... To reflect arbitrary laws that have been made up, this collection of essays I highly recommend it. It's really interesting in terms of uh, different perspectives. Um, we didn't even talk about like half of the essays at this point. Yeah,
0: um, um, let's didn't... let's try one more before we run out of time here. Sure. Uh, do you want to talk about the Oka Crisis? Because I feel like that was that was pretty cool. that was an awesome example, but only because it worked and it was a huge win. Um, and I definitely want to go over it. So okay. do you want to set it up?
1: I. Uh, how about you? Because you read it more recently.
0: So the Oka Crisis is uh, set in Canada and the territory of Quebec. And it's two Mohawk territories that um, came under attack by the state. Uh, basically, one of them, they wanted to establish private property. They were trying to set up condos and a golf course on a reservation for the Mohawk tribe. And um, another one, they had just moved in because it had become a fallback point for the Mohawk who were resisting the expansion of the, the private property. And so what had happened was the, the Mohawks push came to shove. The Mohawks were uh, told that they needed to vacate the reservation and they, they made a final stand. They barricaded the road into the reservation and uh, squatted on the land. And also in a, another local city, they barricaded a main bridge into and out of the city trying to uh, raise awareness to the situation as to what was going on and they eventually called for help from a couple of their allied tribes and they were only able to send over uh, about a hundred soldiers once the things got into the thick of it but it was up to the Mohawk people to defend their land and um, their right to it Uh, when the government came and basically said you've been here long enough even though you're indigenous uh, we're going to displace you once again
1: it's really interesting because they do a great, in this example, they use a diversity of tactics from stalling things through planned, organized destruction, as well as uh, organized self-defense and uh, publicity efforts.
0: Right. So this takes place on the reservation in uh, the 1990s in Quebec. And they were able to, they they did take up arms, but it wasn't their first line of defense against the aggression. They were able to get build barricades and trenches um, around their positions, and they set up defensive positions so that it forced the state to go on the offensive in order to, to show their aggression as to what they were doing. Now, at the time in the 1990s, the media was in full control of the state. So Ah, uh, the police showed up, and the Royal Mounted Police. When they finally got involved, they were able to feed one-sided information or misinform the media as to what was happening in the situation. And the Mohawks weren't able to actually, you know, say their piece and and even get their demands to be heard by the public. Um, they were only in negotiations with the state, who were not listening. They were only trying to show further aggression.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting about the scenario is that they used a mixed collection of ways to reach folks outside of the community things like handheld radios air raid sirens and uh fire hall bells and various human patrols in order to convey messages in and out of the community
0: right they went back to using uh, actual runners and they had uh Uh, local radio station that they had turned into a communication center to keep their fighters on the front lines informed daily and they even uh, turned the communication center into a printing press and had a small uh, local newspaper sent out to people who were manning the barricades day and night so that they could stay informed and not be left out and not feel left out from the fighting effort that they were putting in
1: yeah and uh, further what's interesting and particularly uh, brings us back to this idea of armed self-defense the canadian police tactic uh, police force attempted to disperse the protesters uh using things like tear gas and concussion concussion grenades and um the mohawk just fired right back they started sh- there was a giant shootout for 15 minutes and that's what forced the police to stand to step back and give up their grounds to the mohawks which allowed them to build their um Their barricades, barricades,
0: trenches, but to the point they did not fire at the police, they only, um. They only used suppressive fire when the police had fired upon them with live rounds. They actually used, uh, the butts of their guns and actually fought hand to hand with the police. Again, the guns were a last resort. They showed arms to show that they were serious and that the police couldn't just gun them down. And it forced them to actually fight. So they were, there was fighting, I think, um, and a few of the confrontations, I think the numbers were 75. Uh, wounded Mohawk fighters. The state had about 25 wounded people. And one of the uh, commanders in charge uh, even admitted that he had underestimated them. And he was impressed by the way that they had responded so quickly and uh, coordinated to the fact that it drove them back and they had to reevaluate the situation for a few more days before they even tried to regroup and reattack the defended position.
1: Like you said earlier, the the main focus of managing the influx of uh, police and military response units was the management of that bridge, the Mercer, uh, Mercier Bridge. Right. And ultimately, they did end up having to sit down and make uh, amends and walk away. But they were able to prove that despite their limited size and, you know, compared to the nation of Canada, I believe it was about a month long, they, they fought them off.
0: Right. It was for September through the end of October, so almost, yes. almost two months. And um, they ended it on their own terms. They were ready to stop fighting. They didn't want any more lives to be taken over it. Uh, They had, um, at at the end, uh, when the fighting was finally over, it caught the Royal Canadian Mounted Police by surprise. Um, The Mohawk Warriors had agreed, they had a, a meeting, they had a powwow, and they Literally, they had a powwow and sat down and agreed to not fight anymore. And they had a ceremonial fire and they quite literally burned all of their weapons and disarmed themselves and walked out to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who were caught off guard and attempted to arrest uh, some of the warriors who were surrendering, who um, they did fight back and escaped to local safety um, in the nearby town where they had safe haven. But eventually there was a trial and a few people did go to prison. Uh, But their point was made was you you can't go in and take things from people when they draw a line and say, you've gone this far and I won't allow you to go any further.
1: Again, going back to this text or this book, this collection of essays, all of this points to the fact that despite being outnumbered and despite information asymmetry, uh, weapons asymmetry, all these different things where the state should have magnified to the you know exponential power in terms of all of these different things technology weapons resources bodies and so on and so forth a well-organized group of individuals that are willing to uh, defend their community can be successful and i think that's the the lesson to be drawn from this text is that we are more powerful than we give ourselves credit for as individuals and I know from folks that have reached out to us that there are a lot of newer folks to to the left. Um, and generally, not everyone, but a lot of people on the left start as liberals and progressives and they work their way over to realizing there's a different part that I'm missing and it's that it's it's capitalism. The point being is that a lot of these people work their way over and they've spent their entire lives being anti-gun. And then they get to the left where guns are very... under no pretext do you give them up and acknowledging that is hard because they've had this mentality of what guns mean symbolically and literally as a weapon of destruction
0: that's not it it's just a tool
1: yeah and the the idea here is that you know we have to put them in context as a tool without them our human rights would be I I can't even imagine where we would be without the ability to self-defend as communities If John Brown didn't have guns, then would the Civil War have happened when it did? Would it have been 20, 30, 40, 50 years later? And if so, how many hundreds of thousands of lives would have died because of refusing to take up arms? Right. I think that brings us back to this idea of, with with our idea, with this whole podcast... The idea is what happens when the state fails, what happens when collapse happens, and we're prepared for it. Part of that preparation is understanding what organized self-defense is so that when communities spring up with you and your neighbors and the folks that you care about, that you're able to defend yourself from those groups, especially if if you're a marginalized person. That can be challenging to accept. And that goes back to that idea of uh, liberation. You are able to defend yourself and you have the right to defend yourself and you're valuable enough to defend yourself uh, and have that authority to have a fulfilling life.
0: And as a reminder, those theories and concepts are quite literally what started and founded this country. Yeah. Am, am I right? Uh, that, that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. So-
1: yeah. Um definitely recommend reading counter revolution of 1776 um because gerald horn's a fucking crazy dude but he writes these really great books and he makes a case that the revolutionary war is primarily based on the fact that england was getting ready to release slaves and america didn't want it so they fought a war to keep slavery in the country for another 80 years Um, yeah i could see that (laughs) so um yeah I think I have a copy. I can probably give it to you if you're interested. You've
0: given me so many books to read that I need another set of eyes. So how about we take this one book at a time? Because I can literally only read one at a time.
1: You're making this so difficult for me.
0: I think you are. (laughs) You're doing a great job editing. Andy does a lot of work editing. Um, I just sit over here and babble and look pretty. Uh, Someone's got to look pretty. I know. You're not doing a great job.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking homeless these days.
0: (laughs) So... Did we cover everything? I feel like... I think so. It's hard to wrap it up. We've kind of gone all over the place, but again, we're doing a reimagining series, and the concept is the last episode we did, um, going over uh, small, gritty, and green was setting up communities in a way that will allow you to support yourself with food security and make it so that you don't have to rely on uh, importing uh, food and
1: localizing and decentralizing localize- uh, systems. Thank
0: you. He's yeah. so much better at using the big words than I am. And I have a college degree, uh, but drinking kind of negated all of that. So the first one was setting up communities. This one, we're going to talk about defending it. The next one, we're going to talk about meaningful work and hopefully how to keep everybody employed in a meaningful way. And also, um, we're going to move on after that to, what was it?
1: I've got a couple ideas. Um, We got an
0: outline. We're not just winging it, I promise you. Yeah,
1: mostly. Um, So hopefully you guys found this interesting. uh, Setting Sights, the editor is Scott Crow. It's a fantastic book as a leftist, especially if you're uh, uncomfortable with guns, you didn't grow up with guns. This is definitely a book you want to
0: read. And it's a lot better reason for the reason to use a gun and the reason to get one just in case. Rather than, you know, I'm afraid for my life, which is the excuse that the police are using to gun down citizens in the street. They fear for their lives. Um, I think he puts into perspective how afraid you are or would have to be for your life in order for you to think about using a gun in order to preserve it. Um, so I highly recommend it. Setting Sights, Scott Crow. It, it was a good read. It, it opened my eyes to a lot and like like i said or like andy said it's uh historical examples that we can use in a lens to help reimagine our current situation and find a better way forward for everyone a safer way forward for everyone
1: yeah so hopefully you learned a few things hopefully you enjoyed this this is the second episode of this mini series We'll definitely be back shortly. We've got a bunch of content that's recorded and needs to get edited. And a bunch more content we're getting ready to release. If you like Kropotkin, we're going to be talking about him next. So uh, we'll see you then.
0: Smoke weed every day. Peace. Bye.